Hey friends, quick content warning. Today's episode has discussions of both eating disorders and disordered eating. If these are activating topics for you, please proceed with caution. And we've also linked some support resources in the show notes for today's episode. Hey, welcome to the So Curious Podcast presented by the Franklin Institute. I'm the Bull Bay. And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills, and we are your hosts. Yeah, yeah. And today we're talking all about food. More specifically, how food can impact our mental health and vice versa. Ooh. First, we'll be joined by Dr. Drew Ramsey to learn about how nutrition from the food we eat can impact our brains. Ooh. And then we're going to be joined by self-described anti-diet dietitian Christine Byrne to learn about how the language we use to speak about food can impact our relationship with it. This is going to be good. What's your favorite food? And then when you eat it, how does it make you feel? Great, great (laughs) question. I feel like an old man about to say this, but oatmeal. Oh, that was the... Oatmeal. It's oh, one of those boy. things where when I have it, and especially if I dress it up nicely, you know, mm-hmm. pecans or almonds yeah, yeah. or mm-hmm. cinnamon, yep. bananas, fruits, different things like that. Berries. Yeah, you name it. I feel really like good about what I'm eating. And, you know, those cold winter mornings, you got a nice bowl of oatmeal and yeah. it's made the way you like it. You dress it up how you want it. Uh huh. And I'll just rock out with that. I have my entire life been such an apple cinnamon oatmeal girl, and I just found out a couple months ago that I am now anaphylactically allergic to apples. So oatmeal gives me nothing but sorrow now. Okay. <laughs> so you got to eat enough for the both of us, bro. <laughs> All right. Well, now that I'm very hungry, let's talk to Dr. Ramsey. Welcome to the So Curious podcast. Absolutely. Drew, can you tell us who you are? What it is you do? Well, hey, everybody. It's nice to be with you all. I'm Dr. Drew Ramsey. I'm a psychiatrist mostly, and a lot of people know me through my work in nutritional psychiatry. I've been a real advocate for utilizing responsible nutrition in terms of how we think about mental health. I'm an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University, and I founded the Brain Food Clinic, which is a digital mental health clinic. And I'm a husband and I'm a dad. Before we got on mic, we were thinking about all of the uh, colloquialisms that come along with when you think of brain food, comfort food, and then we're- You are what, what you the, eat. Oh, the um, stomach is the way to the heart or whatever you call it. And Absolutely. so we were like, oh, I can't wait to get into this topic with you. What foods popped into your head? What did you guys start thinking about? So we were talking about comfort food and we were thinking like, well, I always think mashed potatoes and like, I don't know, fried food. But then also we talked about why sweet things just make us feel happy. Yeah, I just (laughs) I just crushed a donut before you came on. Yes, we did. Exactly. How are you feeling? How are you feeling right now? (laughs) Honestly, a little sedated, (laughs) a little sedated. Right. And it's funny, the different times when you eat, you know, if you haven't eaten for a while or you're hungry and eat a little sugar, you feel that rush. Mm -hmm. So it's funny, right? You guys are talking about nutritional psychiatry, this idea that, you know, everyone intuitively knows there's a little bit of how we eat that affects how we feel. Yeah. And in this moment, I'm thinking about did that donut just doom my mental health? Or like, am I going to like spiral into depression based off of like a sugary treat? The team did call me here for a reason, man. So yeah. we all know that you know we've all eaten donuts and our mental health has been okay. We also know we don't feel great after them. Sort of like fast food. You know, you crush it because you're hungry and it's cheap, but you don't feel great. And the other way that we struggle with food is instead of thinking of that long game, This is about what's called nutrient density, thinking about the foods that you're looking at right in front of you. Do they hit a few criteria? And I would say in a way that people aren't selfish enough. 
people don't think, you know, you've got it. You've got the most miraculous thing in the known human universe, like at your fingertips, you've got a human brain. It could do anything. Like you want to learn any language, pick a language right now. You could in the next year, you become totally fluent. Your brain knows how to do that. The idea that we don't feed it and take care of it and prioritize that. We don't wake up with this first ocean of like, man, I've got the specialist thing. I'm going to really nourish it, take care of it, rest it, exercise it. And so just think about your physical fitness, really feel like how well can you nourish your brain? Those are incredible questions to ask. Yeah. Have, you, have you found that food serves some kind of pathway to an answer? Well, I think so. I think food in some ways is a bit of a mirror on this, right? In terms of if you look at your eating habits, everybody listening just over your last week, and you think about, first of all, what was motivating that? Was it a lot of guilt, fear? Was it this like, I'd say kind of boring, lame message about food we've gotten, right? Hate carbs or hate meat or mm. hate vegans or whatever, right? Just like not about people caring for themselves, not about people connecting to their food, but asking people to take a little bit of a step back from a lot of what's driving their eating behavior. So the short answer is yes, I think nutritional psychiatry and thinking about nutrition through the lens of mental health and vice versa, I think it does provide a lot of those answers. Are you able to walk us through some of the science behind how a food can lead to a certain mental or emotional outcome? Yeah, big high-level concepts, first of all, that I think people are missing. When they think about mental health, they think a lot of time of like serotonin and medications. They don't think about all the new science, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about ideas like inflammation, your body's alarm systems, what regulates your body's immune system and, and your inflammation has a lot to do with what lives in your gut. So how does that affect mental health? First of all, all the building blocks of your brain, every single piece comes from the food you eat. If you stop eating B12, you will not have in a few months or years any B12 in your vitamin C, 87 milligrams a day you need of vitamin C. Mm. It's not a lot, but a lot of people don't get it. Vitamin C is absolutely essential for all of the kind of biochemical things going on in the brain that support mental health. You can't make serotonin without vitamin C. You know, you can't put the insulation around your brain cells without vitamin B12. You can't make all of basically like the currency of what makes your moods and your cognition without the proper nutrients. And so you can track something like tryptophan or iron or B12 from your fork all the way into your gut, all the way back up into your brain. It's fascinating. Along with this idea that inflammation is an issue, this idea that brain growth that if you think about mental health issues through a lens of brain growth and inflammation, what controls brain growth in part has a lot to do with what you eat and, and the way you live your lifestyle. So some of the basics, you're moving your body, you're eating a really nutrient-dense brain-healthy diet, and you're sleeping, really high-quality sleep. That's a brain that's primed to be in grow mode. Yeah. Are there foods that you notice in your own life or a certain vitamin or whatever that oh, it's let's like- let's go round robin. Let's everybody do one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to go first. <laughs> I'm going to start hard. Okay. I think everybody should experiment with fermented foods. And that for a lot of people, entry is kombucha because it's tasty and it kind of is elusive that you're drinking live bacteria. Usually doctors aren't like, hey, I want you to go find like a jar, 12 ounces of like- some live bacteria. And I want you to drink <laughs> it down real slow and think about it. I'm putting bacteria in your gut. Uh -huh. That's not usually what we do. But yeah, I'm going to say some kombucha. All right. That's one. All right. Human to human. What's yours? All right. Bay, you go next. Uh, the, uh, like a, what's a food you think? You think every, oh, you're so Philly. God. A food you think makes you feel better. For their mental health. Get, yeah. For their for mental, mental health. health. Yeah. Um, We're making a recommendation, doctor. Come on. Take it seriously. This is public health right here. Everyone's listening. Okay. Dr. Bay, what should we be? <laughs> And what food do you eat for your mental health? A mango. 
Ooh, okay. I, I like mangoes. Mangoes. So mangoes a great example of natural sweetness, right? When you're having that carb craving and you're thinking, how can you extend? That's a sugary tropical fruit. It's great for you, full of all kinds of nutrients and phytonutrients. But also that thing about mango. So I lived in Jamaica briefly when I was in college and we go out every morning, we sit under the mango tree and the mangoes would drop and we'd eat them. And the mango is so full of fiber. Mm-hmm. Right. There's so much in, and as you're getting all that sugar, right? If you're having mango juice, right? It's just sugar water, right? But if you're having the mango, you're getting the fiber in there, and you want to think of all the fun ways you can mix. Like what's popping in my head is a mango kind of ceviche or salsa over some seafood mm, with a little rice. Yeah. All right, Kirsten. All right. I love lettuce. Lettuce and spinach, mm. I want on everything. I love spinach doesn't have it, but like romaine lettuce, like the crunch, I think adds to everything. Yeah. There we go. All right. One way we think about our nutritional psychiatry is thinking food categories. You're mentioning leafy greens, which is a whole food category. Leafy greens are great because they demonstrate nutrient density. A cup of leafy greens has between 20 to 35 calories for a whole cup. And there's just an incredible amount of nutrition, vitamin K, vitamin C, vitamin A in the form of beta carotenoids. There's just all these phytonutrients, there's fiber, and it's filling. Mm -hmm. I think between our three choices, we kind of made a salad. Yeah, look at us. Yeah, a little bit of salad, (laughs) got some mango on there, right? We've got a little little bit of bread. I'm always going to add in seafood because that's a challenge for people. Mm. A lot of people listening, you know, seafood is like they either haven't had a good experience or like myself, I was raised on a farm and there wasn't a lot of seafood. And so I really had to, over time, learn a lot about seafood, adapt my palate today, eat all types of seafood. There's a lot of great recipes. I'm a big salmon person. I love, yeah. Of all the meats, I feel like it makes me feel the least sluggish. So. If everybody made that switch, mm-hmm. right, that you made, if, if wild salmon, I mean, that would be a little hard on the salmon population, but I'd just say for <laughs> you individually as an eater, if you start upping your seafood, right, people like worry about meat, they worry about deli meat. They don't worry that they're not eating enough wild salmon. They don't eat worry mm-hmm. that they're not eating enough anchovies and sardines. Why? Lower price point. Don't worry about freshness. Accessible to everybody. Buy it in Walmart or Costco or any of the big box stores. And I think it's really important just from a food justice standpoint that everybody understands if you have access to any food and food choices, you have some power to make choices about your mental health. I want to keep going and talking about nutrition, but I want to, you know, hold space for the mental health aspect of the conversation on the subject of depression. How could people who are really struggling with depression make decisions and changes that are hard for them, but can be like a simple change that they can make? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that and that switch. It's important to get everybody's attention to talk mental health. So I'm a big believer in small steps and daily steps. Mental health is a daily practice. You know, People think about mental health as this thing, especially if you don't have it, that's elusive, it's out there. And, I, and I've been in that space and I've been with a lot of patients in that space. And so it's important to know sometimes your mind and how you feel is not an accurate representation of what's going on and to really see that lens and then to focus on small things, activities of daily living, right? If you're struggling with how you feel, making sure that the basics, right? If you're in bed too much, getting up and showering, and it sounds really simple, but you feel a little better, not all the way better. If you're suffering alone, you're not going to get better. And I don't say that to be pessimistic. I say that to be encouraging, the hardest thing to do when you're really suffering in some ways is to just reach out. I recommend people reach out to a friend who has some mental health savvy. Sometimes that person isn't in your circle. If you haven't reached out about your mental health and you're listening, that person usually pops into your mind, like somebody you respect and just reach out to them. That's what I encourage everybody. Because then you've got somebody that 
knows. And then you're a little accountable. Mm. And the nice thing is your brain's very resilient. You could take a multivitamin and a Metamucil and drink Gatorade and have a protein powder and drink Soylent mm. and you still run. You know, just like I could take the space shuttle and put like unleaded gas in it. I don't know. Like we wouldn't make it out of orbit, but like it'd probably still run a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so like I said earlier, you've got a gift with your human brain. What you can give back to the world is limitless, really. And so really providing it with the best fuel, it's not only good for you, it's good for the rest of us. Yeah. Is there a way to adapt your palate? For people who are like, I really never grew up with the practice of eating these foods, so I don't like them. Are there ways to adapt your palate? Such a great question because it's asking people to have a potentially aversive experience. Mm. When I was a kid, I didn't like pie. Just conceptual. I'm not sure. I think it was like a texture thing. I just never tried Fruit it. I don't pie, know. chicken pot pie, like just no mm. pie? The whole category, whole wow. category. Like, wow. I might need an extra session, doctor, after this. <laughs> okay, just to get into the whole. We'll put you on the schedule. Uh, now I like pies of all type, but right? I didn't eat any seafood. So first of all, I don't care what it is. It takes at least ten times. You know, I do all these different weird activities trying to keep myself sprightly and youthful, and so it revolves around fun. I started mountain biking and and horse jumping, oddly enough. And I'm not like from that world. Now I'm one of those, I'm riding around that ring. And and what is happening takes more than 10 times. It takes 100 times until you're strong enough, until you're calm enough, until you're in touch enough with the horse, with the spirit, with the environment, all that stuff to really feel what's going on. And so, yes, it takes at least 10 times. And if you don't have the patience for that, you deserve that. You deserve that patience just for you. Yeah. I wanted to circle back to depression really quickly because it's such a timely thing. You know, the lockdown, the pandemic over Mm. the last few years has really affected a lot of people's moods and dispositions. And eating habits. And eating (laughs) habits, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I guess I wanted to ask, like, how do you balance all the complexities of making food decisions in 2022 and beyond? You know, I'm talking about, like, I don't have enough time. I live in a food desert. All these different complexities that kind of play into trying to be well. And sometimes depression blocks your ability to see things clearly. So what's a first step for someone who's in a deep depression? Yeah, I kind of want to combine both of those ideas, right? Which is about how, especially, you know, if these are foods you're hearing, you don't like, you don't like lentils and wild salmon, you shouldn't think that your mental health is doomed, Mm -hmm. right? We all know there's a heck of a lot of good, healthy, nutritious foods in between the glazed donut bait and, <laughs> you know, this wild salmon mango ceviche meal that we're dreaming up. We know so many people don't have access to treatment. People in low-income countries or, you know, not just in food deserts, but also mental health treatment deserts. I live and come from a place that had both of those. And so it really speaks to me, your question. I think the first we have to do with depression is make sure that people know about it. You are not alone. You can find anonymous support communities online. If you're in high school, you can reach out to Bring Change to Mind, which is this awesome anti-stigma organization that has mental health High school clubs, I've been working with them and with Glenn Close, who's their founder. Incredible. You can start following more people who care about mental health on your social media feeds. When I open up and I scroll through, I'm getting messages of affirmation. I'm hearing from, uh, you know, different doctors who are like preaching the good stuff, right? So I get a little more inspired as opposed to just negative stuff. I would say that in terms of food, simple things. One, if there are those processed foods, cookies, ice cream, sometimes when I'm down, those are real important. I have those at the end of the day. So don't hate yourself. Don't have guilt about those. I want you to focus on the wins. Think about simple stuff. Like you mentioned, cost and access. A couple eggs for breakfast plus a little olive oil. 
some salt and pepper, nice piece of whole grain toast. You can increase the price point or you can keep it really simple. Just drop in a little bit of flax, a little drizzle of honey, and some uh, frozen wild blueberries. Doc, geez, well, well, like what's going on here? I am hungry now. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Well, you know what happened? We can talk about why you are hungry, that your body got excited. Right. You ate that donut, you saw it, it's fatty. Now, your blood sugar with a sugary donut actually isn't going to peak for another two hours. You're going to get shut down because, <laughs> no offense. So, right, because you have all that fat in there, so you're not really absorbing it as quickly. And then it, people who wear the continuous glucose monitors, they post about, of this all the time. The blood sugar then spikes in a couple hours. So if you start feeling like boom, 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 heartbeat going up and a little anxious and a little sweaty, that's your donut. So the reason why that sounds good to you, Bay, is that we're loading you up with fiber, right? So slower burning carbs are going to keep you full. We're giving you lots of nutrients with those blueberries and more fiber with that flax and a little drizzle of honey. So you get a little sweetness in your life, mm. but you don't bump up the uh, blood sugar and the insulin. I could do this all day. Thank you so much <laughs> for being here. Seriously. Thank you so much, everybody. I'm up on the gram at Drew Ramsey MD and DrewRamseyMD.com. You all are great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Dr. Ramsey for coming onto the show and putting up with us. Hey, Bay. What's up? Do you ever wonder whether this planet is even going to exist in 30 years? Mm, I do. Mm -hmm. It can be overwhelming to think about how to deal with some of the biggest problems we're facing. Our friends over at the Franklin Institute talked to some of the sharpest minds working in science and technology, though. And I got to say, I think 2050 is going to be pretty cool. Uh -huh. So check out The Road to 2050, a new docuseries from the Franklin Institute at fi.edu. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit from how our relationship with food can positively affect our mental health to how the pressures of society can turn that into a negative relationship. Mm -hmm. We're here with Christine Byrne to explore that perspective further. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. Christine, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, I'm Christine Byrne. I am a registered dietitian and a former journalist. I do a mix of both of those things right now. I became a dietitian and I still write a lot about nutrition for various outlets and my own website, but I also have an eating disorders private practice here in Raleigh. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. It sounds like yeah. you're in the thick of it and you know, you are an anti-diet dietitian. So let's talk about, you know, diets and where did that word start? Where did the idea begin? Can you talk more about the culture of diet? The definition of diet is really just what you eat on a daily basis. So by definition, it's not a bad thing. But of course, that's not what it means culturally to us. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I think the thing to really be aware of is that diets have existed for a long time. I can't tell you exactly when they started. And I mean, diets in the food restriction sense, whether that's restricting how much you eat, or what kind of foods you eat, or when you eat, that's kind of a newer thing, I think, you know, stuff like intermittent fasting. But it goes back. It is kind of a puritanical ideal. So that's how we sort of looked at these things. So we still have this big association with food and morality, I think. That, that is a through line that has lasted. Like we see things labeled as guilt-free or as mm. sinful, good foods and bad foods. So <laughs> that's something that sort of persisted. But I think, yeah, diets, as we know them, have definitely morphed and changed, and they still are. 
you know, yeah. what I really appreciate about your answer, Christine, is you said diet is just the food that we eat in our relationship in terms of, you know, when we interact with it, all those different things. What's changed is the culture over time. Mm. So with that being said, from your perspective as both a nutritionist and a writer, how does the language that we use to talk about food impact our health? So much. It impacts it so much. I mean, because the way that we talk about things shapes the way that we think about things. I think maybe thinking of things as guilt-free and sinful, maybe we don't think that in our heads all the time, but we definitely think, oh, I'm good for eating this. I'm bad for eating this. Mm -hmm. I should be eating this. I shouldn't be eating this. I shouldn't have eaten so much. We never really beat ourselves up for eating too little. I mean, I think Of course, there's exceptions to that rule, but the way that we talk about food is that a human can't be trusted to just eat what they want and what they feel like. It has to be this thing that you're constantly thinking about. You have to be policing yourself. So we've moved away from, I think, like dieting is kind of not cool anymore in an official sense. You, It's not very in vogue to say, <laughs> yeah. well, I'm on a diet. You know, I'm counting calories. I'm not eating this. I'm not eating that. People still do it, but that's not really what's cool. It's more eating quote unquote good foods. And I'm good because I only shop at Whole Foods or I- Hit up the farmer's market, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. That's a big part of it too. And now we're sort of getting- into not just diet, but wellness culture at large. And there is this really sort of pure aura around all of it. If you look at a website, it's all like smiles and the sun is shining and someone (laughs) is on a beach, like (laughs) eating this protein bar. So it's this, yeah, it's so much of that is marketing. Yeah. And so I'm also curious about the difference between eating disorder and disordered eating. Good question. Eating disorders, they have specific criteria. So they're designated in the DSM-5 that in order to have an eating disorder, technically, like that is a medical diagnosis, just like diabetes or heart disease. So you have to meet certain criteria. And there are different eating disorders with different criteria. And there are some that are sort of a bit more catch-all. So if you don't have anorexia, or if you don't have bulimia, then you might have otherwise specified feeding and eating disorder, which is kind of like, okay, you have enough symptoms of these different disorders to have an eating disorder, but not perfectly fit into one of the boxes that we've set. Mm -hmm. Eating disorders involve disordered eating, right? But disordered eating is sort of the more zoomed out, less criteria-driven diagnostic term. And in terms of what is disordered eating, I think we could talk about that for ever. (laughs) Yeah. When you see a healthy person and an unhealthy person, are there conclusions that you can draw about their diet? Or is it, there's a ton of things pouring into this person's conditions at the moment? Or Mm. can you zero in and say, no, they need to eat an apple every morning? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the first thing is you can't really see, and I I know you didn't mean this, but I just want to point it out. Like you can't see a healthy or unhealthy person. You can't tell from looking at someone what's going on with them. That's a really common misconception. And there's a lot of stigma wrapped up in like, if someone is in a bigger body, then they must be unhealthy. If someone is in a smaller body, then they must be healthy. And that's just not really true. So I think more of what you mean is if you're looking at someone's, 
you know, medical history and you've asked them all these questions and they have certain chronic diseases like diabetes or something like that. And maybe they're not as quote unquote healthy. And I hesitate to even use that. No, the answer isn't just eat an apple. And I know you (laughs) asked that sarcastically, but the collaborative approach is different for everyone. And I think at the center of it, and I know it's funny to hear this from a dietitian, is that you can't fix everything with food and not all health problems are created by food. Mm. And that sounds so obvious, but people need to hear that more because I think we really do think that like, oh, if I just eat a certain way and exercise, I think that's the other thing that people sort of associate with health a lot. If I just eat a certain way and exercise, then I will never have any health problems or the health problems that I have will go away. When in reality, there's so many things that go into it. There's also sleep and stress. Those are sort of the other more behavioral things. And then there's the social determinants of health. So what's your income level? How much discrimination have you faced? Like racism, sexism, fat phobia, all these different things that actually can impact your health. How much access do you have to fresh food? Do you have time to cook? Or are you working two jobs and taking care of two kids and... It's just so much harder than, well, this is a good way of eating. Here's what you should do. Because everybody has different means, different schedules, different preferences. And a good approach to nutrition is very personalized. And I think we have to be careful not to make people think that there is this ideal way to eat because that just makes people feel worse when they inevitably cannot do this perfect checklist of things. Since this whole season, we're doing all about mental health. In your experience, how does someone's relationship with food, what are some of the biggest impacts that you've seen as far as their mental health, the effects that that has? Oh my goodness. Well, (laughs) I work with both adults and teenagers, and I can tell you that it's very different working with the two because if I see an adult... They want to see me. They know that something is wrong. Whereas if I see a teenager, it's maybe their parents saying there's a problem and they're not so keen on addressing the issue. But yeah, it affects mental health in so many different ways. So taking you to one end of the spectrum, like if someone is really engaged in an eating disorder, they are not thinking clearly. They don't have enough food to power their brain, basically. Like their cognition is impaired. That's just no way to live at all. I mean, that's yeah. beyond just mental health. That's that's basic functioning that can't really happen. Ideally, how would you like people to feel about food? I think I want people to not have to stress about food. So there's so many mental health implications of disordered eating and diet culture. And there's so much anxiety around what to eat. And there's so much mental energy spent thinking about what to eat. So I think a good relationship with food is one where you're able to sort of know what you want and how much you want. And it doesn't have to be perfect all the time. And you can listen to that and eat based on that. And then just not have all these thoughts of, oh, I should be eating this. I shouldn't have done that feeling guilty about it after, 
thinking all day about what your next meal is. And a lot of people are struggling with that, of just thinking about food all the time and worrying about food all the time. (laughs) You're raising your hand. Yeah, yeah. Now, because I'm thinking about DoorDash and I like, I order from there all the time. And every time I get it, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. Yeah. But it is interesting, like, that you brought up the social determinants of health. Like, that is such a bit, you don't think about the other end of that. You think about, okay, the way that food affects our brain and stress is usually, get these away from me. I can't take this home. I'm yeah. going to be bad. You don't think about, like you said, the also the stress of like, when's my next fresh meal coming from? That's a yeah. really right. good point. I wanted to ask about, I guess, the relationship between the medical community and nutritionists, right? Like how has the medical community's understanding of mental health and nutrition changed over time? Well, I think uh, it's so tempting to look at communities, right? And populations. And that's what all of our data is. And I think it really depends on the individual doctor. And they are learning the same things about their field. We can't just tell people what to do. That doesn't work. There's so many things that go into what you eat, how you move. So I think the nutrition community, the mental health community, the medical community is all sort of learning together that We really need to listen to people and to take into account all of the things that go into who they are and what their daily lives look like. And I think the mental health community is definitely the furthest along with that because that's really core to what they do, paying attention to how people feel and what is getting in the way of their mental health and their anxiety, day-to-day, things like that. And the nutrition and medical community is a bit slower on the uptake of that, like, well, we can't just be prescribing do X, Y, Z and ABC outcome will happen because that's not quite how it works. Everyone's different. Mm. Everyone's ability to do things is different. And one thing that I find very cool about your work is that you define yourself as a weight-inclusive dietitian. Can you explain to us what that means, where you get that? So a weight-inclusive dietitian is someone, and a weight-inclusive anything, a weight-inclusive approach, a weight-inclusive physician, therapist, whatever, who doesn't use weight as a measure of how healthy you are or are not. So I don't prescribe weight loss. I don't help people with weight loss. There's so much evidence to say that long-term weight loss attempts don't work in most people. And now we're starting to learn more and more and research more and more about how they can actually harm people. So it's not just weight cycling, which is like your weight going up and then going down and then going up again, which happens a lot with diets. It's also the mental health impact and the increase in your risk of eating disorders and the stress you feel around food. And imagine if you've been on all the diets. So you've done slim fast, you've done keto, you've done intermittent fasting, you've done whole 30 and you have all these rules in your head about what you can and can't eat. And some of them don't even make sense together. It's like, you know, (laughs) whole 30 says you can't eat bacon because there are nitrites, but Atkins says you can eat as much bacon as you want. And slim fast says you should be eating shakes for so many meals a day. So it's just, it's like this word jumble mush of, of how you should and shouldn't eat in your head. So all of those things are negative consequences of repeated weight loss attempts. 
And the weight-inclusive approach, it is very person-centered and collaborative. So what is your goal? Do you want to lower your A1C, which is a measure of your blood sugar that's a, related to diabetes? Do you want to lower your cholesterol? Do you want to lower your blood pressure? Do you want to, something I hear all the time from people is being able to walk up the stairs without getting out of breath. Mm. It's really about what is it that is bothering you and how can we address those things without talking about weight, without making the goal weight loss? What are the things that you want? How do you want to be healthier? And how can we reach those through behaviors, not just a weight goal? Mm. I love this. I love this. Yeah. Thank you for this complete conversation. Christine Byrne, thank you so yeah. much for being here. Before yeah, you go, any you. final thoughts, anything you want our listeners to walk away with? I hope someday we live in a world where food can just be food and it can be something we enjoy, but don't have to focus on all the time and feel like we need to police ourselves around. I love that. Thank you. I also yeah. hope that. <laughs> yeah, hopefully yeah. one day, right? Thank you for the work yeah. that you do. Seriously. I mean, you're killing it. I love that you are using these terms, you know, like weight inclusive and you're saying the anti-diet Anti -diet dietitian. dietitian. I love that. Yeah. Thanks again, Christine, for coming on to speak with us. It's so interesting because the impact that language can have seems to keep coming up as a theme throughout all these conversations we're having this season. I feel like I see such a difference in language being intentional now. It's work. And it's one of those things where language evolves and grows over time. Like you right. know, what a word means today isn't necessarily what a word means 100 years ago or even mm -hmm. on the other side of the world. I mean, language is a funny thing. Well, be sure to tune in for next week's episode. We're going to be looking at grief and how dealing with a loss impacts our mental health. Loss is not something we can circumvent. It's not something that we can hop over. It's something that we really have to hold and mold and work through. Yeah, absolutely. Keep the issues ready, but we'll keep it a little light. Mm -hmm. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss anything. I can't believe it's the 10th episode and we're still asking you to subscribe to this podcast. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, what are you doing on Tuesday mornings? Yes, at 5 a.m. Just sitting around <laughs> when you could be learning about you could be science? Listening. Yeah. Subscribe. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson and Emily Cherish of Radio Kismet. This podcast is also produced by Joy Matafusco, Jatri Das, and Aaron Armstrong of the Franklin Institute. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our assistant producer is Seneca White. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger, and our audio editor is Lauren DeLuca. Our graphic designer is Emma Seeger. And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. Oh, yeah, and I'm the Bull Bay. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>